Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Super excited today. I have Jake Chervinsky, who's the general counsel of Compound Finance, a popular DeFi platform. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Bully. How are you? Yeah, man. I'm doing really well. This The weather's starting to improve finally, so <laughs> I feel like my mood improves with it. Yeah, for sure. It's So I'm just outside Washington, D.C., and it feels mm-hmm. like spring uh, for probably the first time uh, this uh, this year, so it's very nice. Yeah, D.C. is beautiful in the spring, too. You got the cherry blossoms. Are those out yet? They're not yet. I don't know this year when they're coming out, but we're definitely excited because last year, of course, uh, the pandemic had just hit when it was cherry blossom season and Metro police had to shut down the tidal basin to stop people from getting together to see the cherry blossoms. So it will be very nice if we can actually get to see them this year. Sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's a bit of a different world, although I just saw a headline that was like, Italy's shutting down. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, it feels like Groundhog Day. Uh, crazy, man. But well, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, um, thanks. Thanks for joining. You know, one thing I, I like to do before sort of we get into the issues that I want to discuss. And in this one, I think we'll probably spend a fair bit of time talking about kind of the regulatory and legal issues facing the DeFi industry generally. But, um, you know, I think you have a cool background. You're obviously a prominent figure in the space well-respected attorney. So I, I thought maybe you could spend a few minutes sort of talking about your background and how you got into crypto. I'm sure you've given this spiel several times, but I always find it it's interesting to hear about how people ended up here. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Um, so I should start by saying that nothing I'll say during this podcast is meant to be or should be interpreted as legal advice. Um, I'm happy to sort of give you my general thoughts about legal issues, but I do not represent you, Bully, or uh, anyone who's listening to this. Uh, and um, I also uh, will only be able to speak to my own personal views. Uh, nothing I say here is a representation on behalf of my employer, Compound Labs. Sure. So I um, am a lawyer. I went to George Washington University for both undergrad and law school. Uh, I actually decided I wanted to be a lawyer pretty early. So I did a mock trial in high school and throughout college and then uh, in law school, uh, in addition to doing moot court. And I always saw myself as a trial lawyer. So I really wanted to get into a courtroom after I graduated law school. Uh, One thing led to another, and and you may sort of know how this goes, but in law school, I fell into sort of the expected path of interviewing for very large law firms. Uh, There's this thing in law school called OCI, on-campus interviews, (laughs) and when you're a a rising 2L, it's Mm kind of just like the thing you do. And so I ended up doing uh, OCI, and I got a position as a summer associate at a very large law firm called Baker McKenzie. Uh, And then I got an offer to go back uh, after graduation as an associate. So I started out at Baker McKenzie, uh, which is not really a firm where as a junior associate, you spend a lot of time in a courtroom. So um, didn't really end up doing what I had expected to do. Uh, Instead, I did what was sort of closest to courtroom work or to trial practice for a big firm, which is... Uh, litigation and white collar criminal defense. Uh, And specifically, I was doing compliance and investigations related to anti-money laundering and anti-corruption issues. So uh, issues around the Bank Secrecy Act and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act were were sort of the two areas I spent the most time on. Um, What that looks like at a big firm is Uh, working for very large multinational corporations in the Fortune 500, including, uh, for me, a lot of financial institutions on their internal compliance programs. So that means 
uh, you know, what internal controls do you have to stop or to detect fraud or other misconduct? And what kind of training do you have for your employees so that they understand how to identify red flags and then elevate them to the right people within the compliance or legal department at the firm? Uh, that's sort of the compliance work. And then on the investigation side, um, it's more like the firm has identified some red flag. It turns out that the red flag is that there was a potential bribe payment made to some foreign national, uh, you know, related to the, the sale of some product uh, to a foreign government. And so now the firm needs to investigate what happened and decide if it needs to either voluntarily report the issue to the government, or maybe they've already gotten a subpoena uh, seeking information about this potentially improper payment, and the firm will investigate itself uh, to then, you know, work with the government in the hopes of working out a settlement. So a lot of what I did was investigating those types of uh, potential acts of bribery and corruption. I was doing a little bit of litigation. So, you know, litigation being disputes between different parties related to any number of issues, breach of contract, misrepresentation, a business tort, something like that. Um, but not as much as I wanted to. So after a few years, I decided to take a break from private practice and uh, applied for and accepted a one-year term clerkship with a federal district judge. Uh, so the district judges in the federal court system are the ones who preside over trials. And for me, that was sort of a way to get back into a courtroom, uh, even if sort of on the other side of the bench. Uh, so spent a year, a little over a year as a law clerk, and then went back to private practice uh, at a firm called Cobring and Kim uh, here in Washington, DC, which is a litigation boutique really solely focused on handling uh, cases involving fraud and misconduct, usually involving some kind of international element, uh, and usually facing the government as opposed to being a private dispute between different parties. And uh, that's where I really started doing a lot of government enforcement defense and criminal defense in active prosecutions. So for example, um, represented a precious metals trader who was indicted for market manipulation, um, represented a lot of folks who were getting subpoenas from the SEC and the CFTC, um, you know, getting information requests from the FBI or from FinCEN, things like that. Uh, and that's really where my crypto practice started. So I, I sort of came across crypto a few times over my career. Um, in 2013, I heard about it for the first time when I was doing anti-money laundering compliance work. And uh, you know, back then was when FinCEN put out their first ever guidance on virtual currency administrators and exchangers. And I learned exactly enough about Bitcoin to write two paragraphs explaining what this new ruling was from FinCEN and then promptly completely forgot about it. So big mistake, <laughs> but I guess that's that's one we all make, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, sort of forgot about it, came back across it in about 2017 when prices were starting to go crazy. Um, you know, not a glamorous story, but the first time I really dug into Bitcoin was because it hit a new all-time high. Uh, I think when it when the price went up to eighteen hundred dollars, I was like, "Oh, Bitcoin! This is still around four years later. Maybe I should find out what this is." And I just fell down the rabbit hole. It just, uh, for a lot of reasons, really spoke to me. I just sort of saw the extraordinary importance of public payments infrastructure of a peer-to-peer -peer financial system that doesn't require intermediaries, uh, very much like, with all due respect to my former clients, you know, very much like those large financial institutions I had represented. Um, so did a lot of, of work in 2017, 2018, uh, early 2019, uh, mostly stemming from the ICO bubble and the misconduct that we saw in that sort of mass event of evasion of the federal securities laws. Uh, and after doing that for a while, I, I sort of thought, 
I really love working on crypto legal issues. I don't really love cleaning up the mess of the 2017 bubble. I really believe in the future of this technology. I would so much rather be somewhere that I can help constructively build uh, you know, a new protocol or you know, work on, on crypto issues where I can contribute value and, and help folks get this right. Um, so that's uh, sort of how I decided to jump full-time into the industry and mid-2019. Uh, got an offer to join Compound Labs. I, I thought at the time that DeFi was sort of the most interesting thing going on in crypto. And that's what I, I thought my skills uh, and experience were most useful for. So I made the jump and here we are uh, almost two years later and DeFi is the hot topic on everyone's minds uh, other than NFTs, of course. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. I remember, I remember when you went over, um, you know, cause I've, sort of known you at least on crypto Twitter and things for a long time. And I remember being like, oh, huh, DeFi. And I sort of didn't think much more about it. And then, you know, I think Compound was one of the early projects that really got kind of a lot of traction. And then I remember being like, man, Jake, uh, <laughs> Jake uh, made a, a, a good jump there. So were you, were you like one of the very first employees over there then? Uh, I was employee number nine at Compound. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was early days. And I mean, back then when I joined Compound, the protocol had, I think, maybe $10 million of assets supplied. And today it's a little over $10 billion. So yeah, it's been it's been a crazy ride for the last couple of years. Where um, so yeah, I, I actually don't know much about the history of the protocol or the project. And that shows you what I'm a what a good host I am, that maybe I didn't want to. <laughs> poison the well in my mind so I could just let you explain it. Um, but do you, are, are you able to sort of give kind of an overview of how it started and sort of uh, like the, I guess, the idea behind it? Sure. So um, the, the company was founded and the protocol uh, came into development in 2017. And it was really the brainchild of our two founders, Robert Leshner and Jeff Hayes. Uh, Robert, our CEO, is uh, an economist by background. He uh, worked in traditional banking for quite a while. He's an expert really on interest rate markets. And what he realized was uh, the big missing piece if we're trying to build a, a whole new financial system as opposed to just Bitcoin, which is a digital asset that you can store or send back and forth, but otherwise is unproductive, the big missing piece was interest rates on digital assets. And so the idea was to build a decentralized protocol that would allow users to earn interest on their digital assets without relying on a centralized third party, a financial intermediary to do that. Uh, the hope being, of course, that we don't end up back in a world where banks run everything. And instead of banks custodying our dollars, they're just custodying our Bitcoin, right? That's, that's not really all that interesting in terms of the promise of, of uh, decentralized financial infrastructure. So the, the, the idea that they had and the way that the compound protocol works today is basically as a two-sided interest rate market for digital assets. These are often described as lending protocols, I think for a couple reasons. The term lending is misused in this context. But generally speaking, the way it works is you have suppliers of assets and then you have borrowers of assets. So there are various assets that the protocol supports, including, for example, Ether or DAI or USDC. Uh, if you want to earn interest on some asset that you have, you supply it to the protocol, which feels a little bit like depositing your asset in a bank account, except that you're the one who maintains custody over it at all times. There's no trusted third party that is managing your funds for you. It's non-custodial. And then once you've supplied assets, if you want to, you can become a borrower of assets. So you can use whatever you've supplied as collateral to borrow some other asset that someone else has supplied. Uh, the key is 
the protocol is always over collateralized, meaning you can only borrow up to a fraction of what you've supplied. So for example, let's say you've supplied $100 worth of ether, you could borrow up to $75 worth of dye. And this is how the protocol remains solvent without relying on a trusted third party. If the ether that you supplied as collateral starts to fall in value, then anyone else in the world can come in and act as a liquidator to repay what you've borrowed and then seize some of your collateral at a discount. So they are economically incentivized to maintain the solvency of the protocol. Uh, and then also there's no need for a third party to set interest rates because the interest rates are all established algorithmically purely by market forces of supply and demand. So if there's no borrowing demand for a given asset, the interest rate is zero, right? There's no borrower paying any interest on that asset. And then as demand increases, the more borrowing there is, the higher the interest rates will be. So that way uh, you can have algorithmically established interest rates that don't rely on a trusted third party. So I think a pretty cool innovation and a, a really important financial primitive for, uh, for the DeFi world. Yeah, no, it's a, it's really ingenious when you think about it. It's sort of, it almost operates like the functions of a bank without, um, I suppose, any sort of trusted intermediary. It just, it all depends on the users and kind of what supply and demand dictates. So it, it, it's pretty, it's an interesting process. Does, does Compound take like a portion of unlocked transactions or if someone's liquidated, like, uh, does Compound make money in this process, or is it just more of just a purely kind of custodian of the, the protocol? Uh, so neither, actually. We, we do not uh, make any money on the protocol, and we never have. We also are not really a custodian for the protocol now that it's decentralized. I think the best way to think of Compound Labs is... Um, is really as the original developer of the protocol that is frankly no longer really that involved in the protocol itself. So we built the protocol and launched it as an open source piece of software that runs uh, autonomously on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, since we fully decentralized the protocol, and I can talk a little bit about what that process was like, which resulted ultimately in the creation and distribution of the compound governance token, once we fully decentralized the protocol, we actually moved on to other projects and other more proprietary financial products and services that we want to offer, uh, none of which have come to market just yet, but stay tuned uh, for more about that. Um, so, you know, the protocol really is a, a community of unaffiliated and dispersed users and token holders who are using it very much like people use Ethereum um, or, you know, in a sense, Bitcoin itself, uh, not in any way relying on us uh, as, as an intermediary or a custodian for it at all. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto savvy taxpayers are using Node 40 to determine the taxes they owe or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node40 in your corner. With Node40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. The crypto.com app is a crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. You can earn up to 8.5% APR on your Bitcoin and 14% APR on your stable coins. You'll be paid on a weekly basis, and you can choose freely from flexible one-month or three-month tenures. Get 25 bucks worth of CRO when you download the Crypto.com app with the code BULLY and stake 5,000 CRO or more to take advantage of their interest rate. 
Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on more than 30 coins. Hey guys, one of our sponsors, Gemini, just launched a new product called Earn. It allows you to earn interest daily on your cryptos just by holding them there. And the rates are insane. Some cryptos pay as high as 7.4% annually. Try getting that interest rate at your bank. There's no minimum balance and no fees for transferring it in or out. And it's also available to all U.S. customers and supports up to 26 different cryptocurrencies. And while you're at it, make sure to check out Gemini's Exchange. You can open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully. And if you use my ref link, you can get $10 in Bitcoin after you've traded $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com bully. Thanks. And then I suppose that's where sort of, um, you know, the, the, I guess, securities analysis comes in, right? It's like, you sort of look to, to the Howey test and is, is there reliance on the efforts of others, whether it be horizontal or vertical. And um, so, you know, maybe we'll get into that in a second, but I suppose the idea then is that the more decentralized the network becomes and the less less of a role compound labs plays in sort of the ongoing maintenance and development of the network, the less likely the SEC is to say, oh, well, you know, we think this is actually a security because, you know, at, at the end of the day, really it's the users and the algorithms that are dictating how the platform is managed and developed. Is that kind of the general idea? Yeah, that's definitely the general idea. And we can sort of talk about the theory behind governance tokens. Um, you know, um, I, I would say there's a couple different ways of looking at this, both from a legal and from a technical perspective. I think the big picture is if you're building something that you want to be decentralized, even aside from the regulatory concerns, there's a reason that you want it to be decentralized, right? There are benefits that we get from decentralization. And if you start from that principle, right, that you really don't want there to be a trusted third party because you don't want a, sing a single central point of failure because you want transparency, because you want a flat hierarchy, because you do want to disintermediate the rent-seeking third parties that have been preying on the financial system for so long, then decentralization and removing yourself as, as the developer of one of these protocols from any kind of trusted role in the future operation of the protocol is just the goal that you should be pursuing. And then of course it does get more complicated once you start looking at any number of different regulatory frameworks. You know, the securities laws I think is one of the biggest ones we think about because of what happened uh, in 2017 with the ICO bubble, which uh, you know, we can talk about this a little more, but my view of the ICO bubble was that it was really just a massive amount of unregistered securities issuances yeah. with, with kind of no theory about why, um, other than the SAFT, I suppose, which was more a pretext than it was a legitimate theory in most cases as to why the securities laws would not or should not apply. The securities laws aren't the only framework, though, that you have to think about in terms of the concept of decentralization and the potential risks and benefits of being the developer of open source software that facilitates financial services. Sure. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot to, to think about and, and work on in this space. Yeah. And I think, you know, I suppose probably what you're alluding to is there's FinCEN, there's a CFTC, and there's all of these other kind of AML um, issues. And I, I do have questions about those, but you know, on, on sort of the securities issue, like you said, it's sort of what crypto Twitter immediately goes to. It's like, oh, what's the SEC going to say about this? But, you know, I find you have a very interesting perspective as somebody who helped kind of clean up some of the mess of 2017 and all of these, a lot of them, I suppose, just vaporware ICOs where people were just like raising cash. Um, what would you say, I suppose, to somebody, maybe a cynic who says, well, DeFi is just like ICO 2.0. And, you know, these are just like another kind of another version of the same story. Um, I, I mean, I assume you'd vehemently disagree, but I'm just sort of curious how how you'd kind of paint the distinction between those two. 
Yeah, I, uh, you are right. I, I vehement dis vehemently disagree. I think the only similarity, and I think maybe what some people mean when they make the comparison between ICOs and DeFi tokens, or for that matter, ICOs and NFTs, is there is speculation here where these assets are overvalued. Uh, where people are throwing money around at valuations that do not make sense, where there's a speculative mania. And on that level, I, look, I'm not qualified to disagree. I do not know any better than anyone else how you value a governance token that conveys ownership and management rights to a self-executing autonomous protocol on the Ethereum blockchain, nor do I really know how you value uh, you know, a piece of digital art uh, created by Beeple uh, and sold for you know, $69.3 million a couple of days ago. So you know, in, in the sense of what are these things worth, I think that might be what people mean. Mm -hmm. But if, you, if you're actually trying to compare on a fundamental level ICOs to governance tokens, it means you don't understand what you're talking about. And here's why. The two concepts have nothing to do with each other. ICOs are a mechanism for raising funds to build some kind of enterprise. In 2017, it was almost exclusively fundraising to build protocols that did not exist at the time of the fundraising on the promise that once the team selling the ICO token had finished their work of building this protocol, then at some point in the future, the token would have value. DeFi is totally different. DeFi is not a fundraising scheme. Uh, a governance token is a type of token that conveys certain rights that are set down in code over a protocol that does exist. And I think that is the big difference between an ICO fundraising to build something that doesn't exist versus a governance token, an asset that conveys ownership rights to something that does exist. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I do remember the SEC, like in a lot of the sort of guidance the SEC has issued, one of the sort of prima facie elements is if, if you're raising money to build something that doesn't exist yet, boy, that looks an awful lot like a security. So I, I, I certainly agree with you that that was kind of 90% of what what we saw in the ICO bubble of 2017. And this is certainly a lot different. So the the compound token um, is a governance token, which you've mentioned a few times. What exactly does that mean? Does that entitle the holder to vote in, I suppose, ongoing directional issues, almost like, well, I'll, I won't speculate. I'm just curious what exactly the, the, the token entitles the holder to do with it. Yeah, so um, the compound governance token allows holders to vote on implementing code changes to the compound protocol. Uh, and this is one way in which the compound governance token, I think, differs from a lot of what came before. So a lot of early ideas about governance tokens were tokens that acted more like a poll of what the holders wanted some centralized team to do, right? So the order of operations was uh, an idea is proposed, token holders vote on whether they like the idea. If they like the idea, then the developers of the protocol will build and implement that idea into the protocol. Sort of like a board, board uh, shareholder type arrangement where the board, exactly. board will propose something and the shareholders will vote on right. it. Right, but fundamentally a situation where the holder of the asset, whether it's a, the early governance token or a share in a corporation, is relying on some group of people to carry out effort after they've expressed their will. Mm -hmm. Right, They've said what they want to happen and then they're trusting someone else to do that for them. This is, by the way, what the securities laws are designed to address, right? Where there's an information asymmetry between the people expressing their will and the people who have to carry out their will, right? To make sure that everyone is on the same page about the reality of what's going on. Um, we sort of flipped that on its head and said, instead of having a token that tries to guide the actions of other people, Instead, the token is the device that chooses whether or not to implement a change to the protocol. So every proposal that compound governance token holders vote on is 
actual executable code where if the vote passes, the code will be implemented into the protocol. And that way, there is no information asymmetry, right? You know exactly what you are voting on, whether you want it to be implemented to the protocol or not. So the work gets done first, and then the vote is on whether or not the work should be integrated into the protocol or not. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's that's a really cool idea. So it, it's almost like a GitHub request where if, if it's approved, then it's like pulled to the code base. Um, I guess so. I'm, I, I uh, admit I'm not that up to speed on GitHub. I'm not an engineer, sure. <laughs> just just a, a psychology criminal justice <laughs> double major who's playing around in the crypto world. But yeah, I, I think that that is uh, that's a good way to look at it. Um, what one thing you know, you obviously hear a lot recently about Ethereum and the gas wars and all of sort of the congestion happening on the Ethereum network. And I'm sure when the founders of Compound built the network, they may not have in sort of envisioned transactions that cost 150, 200 bucks or whatever it is. Um, do, do, have you guys sort of grappled with the scaling issue? Are you looking at layer two solutions or like, how, how do you think sort of the, the gas debate and this EIP 559 or whatever it is about changing the gas mechanics? Do you, do you have any views on sort of how gas and the congestion are affecting compound? Uh, it's it's definitely a big issue. I have some thoughts, although um, this is usually the kind of thing I leave to the engineers since sure. I I, um, I don't know as much detail. But I'll give you I'll give you my thoughts as far as I see it. Um, gas is a big issue. I think everyone wants Ethereum to be available for as many people as possible, right? We don't want to price out your average retail user so that only very wealthy people can use this system. That is directly contrary to the ethos of DeFi, which is uh, you know, a decentralized financial system that's open and available to everyone. Um, so gas is, is something we have to figure out how to address. Um, we at Compound have just launched a testnet for our next project, which is not directly related to the Compound protocol, um, but is um, kind of like a layer two or a side chain, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's an application specific blockchain called Gateway, which performs sort of the function of the Compound protocol uh, in that it allows interest rates on digital assets but also is interoperable across different blockchains. Um, and in theory has some benefits for scalability itself. I think the, the theory there is like it or not, we are somewhat likely to end up in a multi-chain world. So other chains that may have more scalability, you know, even at the expense perhaps of security, like um, Solana or Cosmos or Polkadot or, uh, what have you can connect to Ethereum. So that's sort of our thinking about what might come next for scalability. I think on a personal level, what we're seeing now is the entire DeFi community realizing that there needs to be some solution. And um, unfortunately, it seems like everyone has a different idea about what the right solution is. So, you know, there's a bunch of different layer twos coming online. There's Starkware, which uh, some folks are using, there's Optimism, which others are using. And I think this threatens to break one of the most exciting things about DeFi, which is its composability and its interoperability. But I think ultimately this is just a period of growing pains where it is very obvious that DeFi has found product market fit or protocol market fit. And now we're just failing to scale, hopefully gracefully, as Andreas Antonopoulos would say, right? Fail, failing to scale gracefully uh, pretty much forever. And you know, hopefully we'll figure something out what exactly that is, I don't know. Um, but then I guess the, the last thing I would add to that is right now, uh, the main drawback of high gas fees is just keeping some people out of DeFi because it's too expensive to transact. Thankfully, if you're already in DeFi, it's not the kind of system where you need to uh, conduct many transactions on a day-to-day -day basis, right? This isn't a high-frequency trading system. 
in, in kind of the same way as you would say, a Bitcoin holder is a daily active user, right? Just holding Bitcoin is, is a way of using Bitcoin. You can perform one transaction to get into the compound protocol or to supply liquidity to Uniswap or whatever it is. And then you can just sort of sit there, right? You, you don't have to keep transacting. So uh, low throughput isn't the worst thing for DeFi, but it's definitely something that we need to solve. Sure. And so, you know, a lot of my users, uh, I get so many DMs about DeFi and like, what is DeFi? How do I learn more? So I suppose one of the ways people, traders or farmers are using Compound is they'll deposit their Ethereum into Compound and then borrow against it and get like USDC or DAI or something and then take that and go and farm with that. So, so while you're holding ETH, it's almost like a, not leverage, but it gives you like a way to sort of transact using your Ethereum without actually selling it. Is that sort of the, the core kind of thought behind it? Uh, for borrowers, I do think that's yeah. right. I mean, I think the vast majority of people who use Compound are not borrowers. Mm -hmm. They're just suppliers, gotcha. right? They're not people looking to play, you know, yield farming games in DeFi. They just want to earn some interest on an asset that's otherwise unproductive. But yeah, I think like, to the extent that there is an interest rate to earn, it's because there is demand for borrowing, right? Borrowers who are paying that interest. And that's right. I think what most of them want is to maintain price exposure to their ether, uh, but they still want to be able to use that value in some way. And it's, it's not that different in a sense from the long running complaint of someone who says, you know, I need to pay my bills, but I don't want to have to sell my Bitcoin to do it compound is the type of system that allows you to not have to sell, but to still be able to borrow against uh, and without having to go to a bank who doesn't know what Bitcoin or Ether is and will give you a really hard time about doing that. Sure. Um, so that's, I do think that that's sort of the main use case uh, on the borrowing side. Um, I, so I had Stani on from Ave Protocol a couple of weeks ago and I asked him this and I'm going to ask you too. Do you, do you worry at all about sort of the systemic risk involved in sort of a lot of these lending and borrowing platforms where, you know, it becomes, it becomes sort of so um, it's, I don't know the right word to say it, but like people borrowing and then using their stuff to borrow and then they go and farm with it. And then that those farm, you know, you can sort of keep daisy chaining this stuff together um, and I suppose in, in, the, in the case of a big move on Ethereum or something where you're seeing a ton of liquidations that kind of clog up the chain, has, has there been any sort of discussion internally with you guys about wh what happens in the event of like, a, I guess not a black swan event, but like a major move in the market that would precipitate like massive liquidations and then... Um, I, maybe I'm sort of seeing ghosts here, but do you, do you see my question? It's like all of these products work so well with each other that maybe eventually that, that interoperability almost poses some sort of systemic threat to the, to the industry itself. Or do you think I'm seeing ghosts? Uh, well, uh, it's absolutely the right question. I, uh, 100%, it is the question that we should be asking about these systems. I, I would say I don't worry about it, but I think it is very important for us to focus on it. The reason I don't worry about it is a couple things. Um, first of all, these systems are all transparent. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the most amazing sort of like revolutionary things about DeFi is unlike the traditional financial system, which is a total black box. And this is how you end up with deleveraging events that threaten the entire financial system, like in the global financial crisis, uh, or even, you know, what happened one year ago, um, you know, in March when the pandemic started, we have total insight at every moment in real time as to exactly what the risk level is in each DeFi protocol. So you can look at these protocols and quantify exactly uh, 
how much collateral there is, how much has been borrowed against it, what all of the positions are for every single address interacting with the protocol, and what kind of market move you would need to see in order for there to be a risk of insolvency. Uh, so there is a risk, and it is right for us to, to evaluate it. And I think the awesome thing about DeFi is we can evaluate it in an open and transparent way. The, the second thing I would say is we are doing that evaluation. And when I say we, I mean we, the DeFi world, not Compound Labs, right? You should not be relying on us to, to ensure the solvency or security of the protocol. That's not our job. Um, but there is a fantastic firm called Gauntlet, uh, which is run by a guy named Tarun Chitra. Have you have you seen Tarun on Twitter? No, I need to I need to look into this. Gauntlet, you said? You should check it. Yeah, it's Gauntlet Network and Tarun Chitra. So I would recommend everyone check out Tarun. He's a genius. And the joke about him is if you can understand 10% of what he says on Twitter, you're <laughs> ahead of the game. But Gauntlet did a market risk assessment of the compound protocol uh, that analyzed exactly these questions, right? What is the market risk uh, that prices move in a way where liquidations can't keep up with um, the need to ensure solvency in the protocol? So we have really good data about that, which is pretty cool. And then the last thing I'd say is um, these systems get stress tested live. And that's something you have to know about DeFi. And it's a risk you have to be willing to assume if you get involved in this ecosystem. Uh, it, you know, it still requires a fair amount of sophistication, I think, to get involved in DeFi. And I think it's incumbent on users to sort of know what that risk is, because there could be an adverse market event like there was literally one year ago today. <laughs> and, you know, Black Thursday, um, there were issues in some DeFi protocols, right? Maker uh, famously um, had a huge issue where uh, Dai was—I wouldn't say insolvent, but you know, temporarily had some issues there. Um, and one of their backstopping mechanisms, which is their auction system, didn't work quite exactly the way that it was supposed to in that environment. Um, thankfully, the Compound Protocol did not have any issues on that day. And I think if you can suffer a fifty percent drop in value within a few hours of you know the main asset in the protocol ether without having trouble that's at least good evidence for the security model of these of these protocols working pretty well but again these are risks that we have to be honest about and we have to um you know evaluate and, and uh take seriously yeah no and to be honest i i guess i hadn't thought about the transparency issue. One thing I think about the transparency issue is I'm like, oh, that means a lack of privacy. But I suppose on the other hand, that means there's like, like you said, visibility sort of into the industry as a whole and uh, platforms in particular about what their solvency would look like in, in the event of big moves. And, you know, I guess one thing you think about is like 08 and sort of the CDOs and kind of these novel financial instruments that were created on Wall Street to kind of collateralized debt and all of all of these things just unwound spectacularly but that was a heck of a lot more money than we're talking about here and you know to your point those systems were not transparent at all i mean you had banks selling god knows what to god knows who and nobody knew the sort of industry-wide risk which you can certainly identify here um i mean like CoinGecko or DeFi Pulse has like the total locked value across all platforms. And so you're right, that data is publicly available. And so I suppose that just by it being transparent reduces the risk to some extent. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the, the regulatory response to the global financial crisis, which was largely in Dodd-Frank, one of the centerpieces of Dodd-Frank was to say, we need more insight into derivatives. Derivatives are weapons of mass financial destruction, right? Regulators have to be able to audit or, or at least track reasonably well what's going on with derivatives trading so that they can analyze systemic risk. And the solution in part was to say, all derivatives of certain types and between certain parties must be traded on exchanges, right? Centralized exchanges through a swap execution facility or on a designated contract market, et cetera, so that the information could be reported 
to regulators. The beauty of DeFi, and this is frankly, uh, from a big picture perspective, uh, how I think we should be viewing DeFi and its intersection with regulation is that DeFi can use engineering to solve some problems that previously could only be solved by regulation, right? By forcing trusted third parties to change their conduct. The openness and the transparency of the DeFi ecosystem gives regulators the insight they need into systemic risk without having to force everyone to trade on centralized exchanges, which creates all sorts of other counterparty risks and, uh, and you know, restricts economic activity in ways that have other costs better avoided. Um, your point about privacy is a really good one. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, and I think you and I have talked about this on Twitter a fair amount, that I care deeply about privacy. Um, I think the, the hope there is that we will be able to maintain privacy as to the actors in these systems. Uh, without having to obscure the transactions in these systems. And I'm not technically sophisticated enough to tell you exactly what kind of zero knowledge proofs you can use to do that. But I think, you know, in general, where the privacy discussion has gone is to say, we don't want to obscure base layer transactions because then we're not going to know if there is an inflation bug or something like that. Rather, we want to build privacy a, a, a level above that. So I think that would be the hope for those of us who want to balance the fundamental right of privacy with transparency and the benefits of those bring to, uh, to the wild world of DeFi. Sure. Yeah, no, and I think there's plenty of people working on those exact efforts at the moment. So power to them, I suppose. Yep. Um, well, that's great. And, you know, I know we're running short on time already, which is a shame because I'd love to keep going. But, I, you know, I know besides Compound, you wear a few other hats. You're uh, the DeFi chair of the Blockchain Association and some advisors. Do you, I get this question a lot, and I'm sure you do too. And I was just curious your thoughts on it about law students or young lawyers who are listening who might want to get interested or who are very interested in crypto and want to like make their career in it. Do you have any sort of advice for those folks who are looking to break into the space and as a lawyer? Um, yeah, it's, um, first of all, I would encourage them definitely, uh, especially if they're interested in the technology itself definitely to uh, to get involved and look for opportunities in this space. I think there is so much opportunity here, and especially as a young lawyer, to take on way more responsibility uh, and just get much better experience and opportunity than you will elsewhere. Um, you know, speaking as a former associate at a big firm, right, the amount of experience you get there is just nothing compared to what you can do um, you know, jumping into a, a new and innovative uh, industry like the crypto industry. So definitely validate anyone who is interested in getting involved. Uh, to me, um, the best advice I can give is number one, learn the technology deeply, right? I think the thing that keeps most lawyers out of this space is just their fear of engaging with technology. I know you had a guest recently on um, who who bristled at the idea that lawyers are, uh, you know, not tech savvy. But I think broadly speaking, they, they tend to yeah. be. Um, so learn the technology. The, the better you understand it, the more useful you're going to be if you really want to do work in this space. The second thing I would say is just start writing. And this is what I did, right? I was in private practice. I really was interested in crypto on a personal level. I was doing some work around crypto, though it was maybe only half of my workload. And I was getting most of my information from crypto Twitter, because where else would you learn about crypto than being on crypto Twitter, right? Um, and what I noticed was there were so many people who were sort of like VIPs in the industry, right? People who are really pushing all of this stuff forward, CEOs of companies uh, that were building cool stuff or, um, you know, podcast hosts who were, you know, sort of driving the narrative and the conversation, 
um, investors, right? I think you know uh, venture capital has been hugely important to to the space, and all of these folks are are talking to each other on crypto Twitter, and they're asking questions about legal issues and regulatory concerns, and no one was answering them. And what I thought was, I'm just going to jump in and start answering some of these basic questions. I'm not afraid to engage openly with people who you know, don't know how to get good answers from lawyers. And I'm not worried about being wrong in public, which most lawyers are absolutely terrified of. And I think just by virtue of my being willing to put my thoughts out there and to do some writing on these issues, uh, it, it, it opened up so many doors for me. And I think whether that's getting active on Twitter or writing blog posts, um, for your law firm's blog or for your own personal blog or writing client alerts, writing articles and sending them into some of the major crypto media outlets. I will tell you, if you send a halfway decent article to, you know, Coindesk or The Block or, um, you know, Decrypt or Cointelegraph, like, they will help you whip it into shape and they will publish it. Um, or even, you know, more sort of esoteric detailed writing, you know, write a law review note, right? If you're a 2L and you're on a law journal and you don't know what to write about, pick a topic and write it about crypto. There are so many issues that we have not figured out in this space that you can contribute value to that if you just sort of pick something and run with it, you will be able to make a name for yourself. We will read it. Like you'll, you'll be pretty shocked, but like all of us lawyers in the industry will actually read what you wrote and we will tell you what you, what we think about it. Um, so just get active and, and start talking about this stuff and put yourself out there. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks. No, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for, thanks for joining for the folks listening. Um, follow Jake. He's at Jay Travinsky on Twitter um, and check out compound labs which is compound.finance um jake anything else any parting wisdom or any other sort of projects you're on that you want to plug before before we sign off um that's all i've got man this was really fun thanks for having me yeah, on yeah yeah thanks thanks for coming and um yeah to my listeners go follow follow jake and um to the law students who are listening go go get go get <laughs> researching in the library all right. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday, 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.